Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Supply Chain podcast. I am your host, Radu Palamario, Global Supply Chain Practice Head for Morgan Phillips Executive Search. Today I'm happy to have with us Dr. Wolfgang Bayer, Group CEO of Laxasia. Laxasia is one of the largest regional distributors of over 150 international beauty and luxury lifestyle brands, such as Clarins, Estee Lauder, Ferragamo, Hermé, and Shiseido. And they also have joint ventures with the Coty Group, the Louis Vuitton and Mert Hennessy Group, and Elizabeth Arden. Present in 15 Asia-Pacific countries and hiring more than 2,000 full-time employees, Laxasia aims to define a new omnichannel experience in the beauty industry in Asia. Dr. Wolfgang Bayern has been the group CEO of Laxasia since August 2016. He joined on a mission to transform the company from being the leading Asia beauty distributor into a lifestyle omnichannel leader, adding e-commerce and new industry capabilities to the brick-and-mortar foundation. Prior to this, Dr. Byron was the group CEO of Singapore Post from 2011 to 2016. He successfully led the transformation of the Singapore Post group from a traditional postal service into non-male businesses such as logistics, retail and e-commerce and managed to accelerate its global expansion. This resulted in a significant increase of the share price. Before that, Wolfgang also worked for more than 10 years in the top consulting firm McKinsey & Company in Europe and in Asia, was a partner of the Singapore office leading the trans- transportation and logistics as well as operations activities in Southeast Asia. Wolfgang, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Fantastic. Happy to be here. Um, so let's, let's, uh, let's start with the, with the fun question, right? Uh, how, many, how many fragrances do you use now and how many did you used to use before joining Laxasia? In, indeed, you know, before I joined, I had maybe one or two fragrances once in a while. And I would say I, I must have more, more than 25, 30 fragrances now, you know, kind of because first of all, I want to try all our brands, you know, and understand the heritage. And then once you really fall in love with, with, with fragrances, it's very hard to stop. It becomes a little bit like a collector's item. Wherever you smell something new, you want to have it, you know, so I've been infected. Yes, yes. It's, it's, uh, it, it catches you. You caught the bug, right? Yes, um, exactly. Um, when, when you joined uh, two years ago, Laxasia, uh, the group was, was already pretty much leading in brick and mortar. Right, um, and and you shared from the beginning that you wanted to focus more on uh, on e-commerce. Now, how has that focus changed the business so far? Two years into it, well, it, it clearly has changed because we're now two years on our transformation to really kind of go much more into omni-channel retail, and I think that, that's the key word for us. Also, it's it's not e-commerce on one side and and retail on the other. It needs to merge together, and so what we have been doing is is uh, quite a lot of things that I call typically under the hood, which means things that are not that visible to the outside. You know, we have basically gotten our finance uh, systems really in good shape. We have gotten all our HR systems now more and more into shape. We work on our supply chain, all our warehouses. We run our our own warehouses are now e-commerce ready, P2C and B2B. You know, and and, and the the list goes on, technology, order management systems, everything which we put in place so that we can now have the capability to work with our brands online, offline, and always have the consumer in the middle at heart. And on, on the topic of consumer, we partnered with Salesforce.com, you know, where we basically now rolled out kind of Salesforce across all our platforms with our brands, which means we can start to identify consumers online, offline, and then give them really what they want. Mm. So really putting the consumer at the heart of what yes. you what you do. Um, and, and you mentioned also uh, that using only e-commerce in the beauty industry would not work, right? Because it consumers... It is yes. difficult. It is very difficult, you know, because um, the, the, the one is obviously kind of when you look at skincare products, they still want to try the texture, you know, and the smell of it uh, for fragrance, you know, the smelling is still an important part of the discovery. And for makeup cosmetics, it's basically m- mostly seeing kind of how it looks on your own skin tone. Yeah. 
yes, the technology evolving, you know, that kind of you have these magic mirrors and lots of apps that can show you, but nothing still beats kind of the, the real um, experience. We see two segments um, in, in e-commerce. One are the, the, the price seekers, people that really look basically for a product and, 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 and find the cheapest product. You know, the, this is a segment which is not that easy to work with as official distributor where we keep up the retail prices. And then we, we, we see the true beauty lovers who love to see it find, find new new areas, uh, kind of new kind of innovation and really like to, to go deeper into the history. And those people, you can then invite for events, but then do the purchase online, basically do repeat purchases online. Because once people know the product, you know, then it's very easy to go online, you know. But I think that first discovery still has to have a, a physical touch. Yes. And, and you speak uh, you speak a lot about uh, omnichannel, right, of, yes. of, of Luxasia. Um How does and, and, and how does it feel and look like an omnichannel experience uh, yeah. trademark luxation? Well, you know, we have over 150 brands now. So kind of for each brand, actually, our omni experience looks a little bit different, you know. Um, and at the core, and we mentioned before, is, is the consumer. You know, the consumer, the Asian consumer that goes out and wants to buy a beauty product. And then we need to make sure that wherever the consumer looks, we need to have a touch point that could be in a department store, that can be in a chain store, that could be in a perfumery, that could be on a marketplace somewhere, you know, on an electronic marketplace, that could be on one of the brand sites, or that could be on laxasia.com itself. And so we need to make sure that whenever we see that interest, we basically channel it into kind of uh, uh, the system and make sure that kind of that, that consumer is then really taken care of. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't work always, you know, but I think we're improving step by step and learning a lot on how you really kind of make those journeys for those consumer enjoyable. You know, when they first experience something, So uh, what's the time frame that you want to trigger them again to try something? Do you send them some samples? Do you send them online, you know, and so forth? So, so there's a lot of those things that basically for the consumer, it's almost invisible, but it should be almost in the future. So I hope with artificial intelligence to anticipate what they're looking at. Once we have enough data points, it's obviously after a year we don't have yet, we should be able to, to, to cluster consumers and say, hey, actually, this, this, this kind of consumer is kind of a... a true beauty lover and kind of is going when they buy a fragrance you know you can also kind of offer them potentially some some of the adjacent products you can see whether they like some of the other skincare and so forth you know so that you start basically anticipating the wishes of of the consumer and really help them in in that beauty journey yes And probably it's, it's, it's a good idea if you manage to also kind of anticipate when they run out of stock, right? So it's, it's very important. like replenishing, replenishing their... It's, it's huge, their you know. We have about 20,000 SKUs, you know, and, and they're very, very different in, in the, the way basically they behave. You know, some are long-term, no expiry, to some are just seasonal, you know, two months, some are promotional. You have the gifts that you give to purchases. You know, we have the, 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 the stocks that we get in church just for testers. So there's a lot of different areas. And, and so our supply chain is pretty complex. Complex. And the more we understand about the consumers, the more we can anticipate kind of how, how certain events work, um, kind of the better we can plan for our supply chain and, and avoid, you know, not only overstocks, but also stock outs, which then would be lost sales. Yes. Um, and, and, and what do you see as, because as, um, again, Asia is a little bit of a different market and it's a lot of different markets in itself compared to, for example, Europe or, or America. Do you see certain regional trends in the beauty industry, in the e-commerce segment that are particular to, to Asia? Yes, I think overall you, you see clear trends in, in, in different kind of ways how, how, how consumers appreciate fragrances so that Southeast Asia 
for example, is looking more for heavier fragrances, whereas the further you go into the north, it, it's lighter fragrances. The same is for skincare. You know, here in the tropics, it needs to be very light skincare. You know, it, it can't be too oily because you can't wear it. And I think the, 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 the same is true, I think, when you look at those brands that, that are represented in e-commerce. Obviously, for, for example, in China, there's a very well-established kind of e-commerce ecosystem with Alibaba, with the WeChat and everyone else, you know, kind of really producing. Versus in quite a few countries here in Southeast Asia, it's still very nascent. You know, um, in Philippines, there's a lot of social selling. You know, in Indonesia, there are a couple of, of websites, but in beauty, not very well developed. Singapore is more developed. Malaysia is quite developed. But, you know, each of them has, has different players and, and, and different development stages. So it's quite interesting. Yes. And do you see, do you see Laxasia going into different markets with a different aggressive or not so aggressive Absolutely. strategy? Or? Absolutely. So, so we, we have to. Because what, what we try to do is we want to create um, a simple backbone for Laxation, you know, where you have your supply chain, you have your CRM system on it, you have your back office systems, and then each country can basically adapt and, and, and touch into whatever they need for the market. You know, a solution for Singapore would be very, very different compared to a solution in Vietnam. Yes. So basically, you, you, you can customize, you have the backbone, which is fixed and offers the, 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 the foundation, and then you yes. can customize the approach to the market in, depending yes. on the market conditions. Even on the supply chain, you know, the, and in our warehouses, you know, because in some of the markets, uh, labor cost is, is still very affordable. You know, that is then basically where you don't put the fully super automated warehousing system and the robotics and everything in, but you basically scale it back. You still have the same information flow, but, you know, the physical flow is different. And so we, we, we clearly distinguish that along all the functions to say what, what's the best way to go out to basically make sure that the consumer is at the heart and then basically make sure we have the most efficient uh, layout around. Mm. Um, and, 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 and we got a question coming back to a little bit, to, we discussed a little bit with the, the, this term which uh, uh, appeared uh, recently, which is digital, right? Which is basically the combination of the physical location, store location and the digital world. Um, and we have some examples of, of uh, you know, Burberry's and they have, I think, retail theaters and magic mirrors and fitting rooms. You see Tommy Hilfinger, they have mm. in-store virtual reality headsets. Obviously, for perfumes, it's much harder to do, right? But do you see such developments uh, changing and, and basically shifting the, the, the developments of department stores all over the region? Absolutely. Because you, you can see consumers are looking for experiences. So just putting the bottles of perfumes or skincare or makeup is not enough anymore. So it's really about making sure um, you create an experience around it that can, can be kind of a, a cloud of the perfume, that could be workshops on the skincare, that could be true makeup artists on makeup. So basically putting more experience into retail and then how do you get people excited about it? How do you get the input is via the digital, you know, via the Instagram campaigns and all the digital campaigns that people know there's something happening. They can co-create and then you put it together. And that's a classic example how, how basically both worlds come together. Yes. So basically a combination of, of online and offline. Um, what... And we talked, touched a little bit upon, uh, upon it, but what are the areas where you find still a lot of, of room for improvement, you know, as white spaces, if you may, in the industry? You know, for, for me, to be honest, you know, I always see improvement, you know, <laughs> that's basically a trait I have. Um, I think, first of all, I think let's start by, by a different function. I think in the back office, uh, supply chains and the forecasting capabilities can always improve. I think once basically as an industry and also as, as, as a leading player, we, we are kind of a much better equipped to judge new launches 
by the response on social media, by, by, by basically certain responses of consumers, and then basically put them into algorithm that allows you to, to know how much do I order now in advance, how much do I move, how quickly will the stock move. So I think there's a real a whole topic about forecasting and predictability of stock movements taking into account social media and other kind of um, uh, data points from, from region where it has already launched, you know, I think that that can help us, you know. And when you look at the, the way um, you interact with the consumer, you know, it, it can become much more personal in the future. It should become more personal, you know. It should not be, you know, kind of five clusters. You no, know, it should be maybe kind of I'm, I'm, I'm overdoing it a little bit, but it could be a million clusters, you know. It should be the cluster of that consumer where you then draw insights, but at the end of the day, it needs to be very, very special to, narrow. to the mm. person. Very narrow, exactly. And, you know, the, then the, the, the way you basically interlink e-commerce and, and department stores and chain stores, you know, there's also um, quite some breakage still in that because it's different platforms, you know. Uh, obviously, kind of chain stores are going more into integrated, but when people come to department stores, you know, how do you now feel, fully engage them on, on on the way out and, 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 and so forth. So I think along all the ways, all the different segments of the business, you know, there's a lot that one can learn. Uh, what I always say is most important is to have an open mind. You know, and, and that, that's what we discuss with our team a lot is because you can't really say where exactly the journey is going, but you need to try it out. And some ideas don't work, learn from it, move on. And I think we, with that, I think the whole industry and, and us also as, as a leading player in the industry, we really want to see that Asia over time takes a leading role, you know, in beauty and, and how we basically treat the consumers in a really fully uh, kind of physical and digital integrated way. Mm-hmm. And we had a, we had a question uh, to, to, to follow up on the point with, with supply chain and, and, and the backbone, right? We had a question also in terms of um, uh, investments specifically for Singapore because it's a relatively small size compared to the other Southeast Asian countries. Um, what opportunities do you think e-commerce in Singapore provide to investors and how would the market shape up in the future? You know, the, when, when I basically started to talk about e-commerce, it was about almost 10 years ago, you know, at that time there was not a lot happening and I think that also explained why at that Singapore Post we had a really good run there, you know, to, 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 to move ahead because it was really at the on start. Since then, the landscape has developed a lot. You know, you have very large players here. You have the largest players in the world with Alibaba, kind of with their subsidiary, with, with Amazon coming in, you know, and you have the Q10s of the world and you have a lot of small startups, you have brands. So I think that it's quite a vibrant e-commerce place. The, the fulfillment is also not a problem anymore, you know, from, from the pop stations and the locker stations to house delivery. They're, they're pretty cheap, affordable, lots of startups trying out. So I think that the, the, the landscape is right. I think what, what, what obviously you, you would like to have more of is obviously true entrepreneurs who are trying to push the boundaries, you know, in e-commerce and also in Singapore and, and trying things out, you know. And so I think overall the capacity is there. And Singapore will always be, I think, is a very good launch pad for many of, of the e-commerce ideas for Southeast Asia because you have absolute stability, very good uh, talents, and obviously kind of you can try out a lot of things. But, you know, in terms of scale, you then have to go very quickly into Southeast Asia because, you know, it is five, six million, you know, and, and you want to have the 600 million. And, and so the thing is for us, you know, if we would not have a regional uh, footprint, we could not invest so much into Singapore, you know, because we have all our special teams that support in Singapore, but they serve the whole region. And I think that's a very, very important uh, focal point. When I also look at the, the e-commerce industry in Singapore, I think it's a fantastic test bed, but it's important for all of those companies very quickly to scale up 
Otherwise, you can't keep track on, on the investments because they will not pay off. Yes. And actually, we had, uh, we had um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this company called e-commerce, uh, which is a very interesting company. We had Paul, uh, who was the CEO mm. on the podcast, and, and he was actually arguing that it's, it's better for companies to start in a tough market, like he started in Thailand, because then you kind of uh, wrote, yes. uh, you, know, you learn the ropes in a, in a very tough environment, and then it's easier in some ways to scale in the other markets because each of them has their own um, exactly. demographics and, and, yeah. and, and own set of, uh, of drawbacks. Um, you've been on the sea level, right, operationally, both as a brand owner and as a service provider for, for e-commerce. What's the biggest misconception or misplaced assumption that one side has on the other? You mean between the brand and distributor or...? Uh, yes, yes. You know, to, to be honest, you know, we don't see that problem of misconception so much, you know, because... Um, I think that may have been in, in, in the past, uh, 10, 20 years ago. But by now, if, if the brand and the distributor don't work together to build a market and are really more or less market makers, the consumers will not buy it. You know, so, so, so they're kind of trying to just sell something and, and hard selling something, discounting things and putting it to different channels doesn't work anymore. You know, the consumer wants a story. The consumer wants the, the, the original product. They want to have the right price. And so I think when, when we look at our partnerships, you know, the ones that work by far best is the ones where we sit open table, fully transparent on cost structure and everything else on the table and say, these are the consumers. This is how we would like to, to serve them. How do we make it happen together? Yes. So partnership, partnership exactly. model. Um, final question in terms of the, in terms of the industry focus and e-commerce focus. Last mile. So it's been, a, you know, it's been actually a, a big challenge. It still is a large challenge. Maybe in Singapore a little bit less, but still is. In the, in the other markets, definitely more. The more islands you have, the bigger problem it is. I agree. Um, do you feel it's, this is probably one of the biggest challenges for the e-commerce growth? What do you think about last mile delivery? Last mile used to be the, the main hindrance, you know, kind of uh, eight, nine years ago, kind of that, that was really the challenge because the only real last mile you had kind of available were the postal players, you know, which outside of Singapore kind of had challenges and um, the, the, the very high-priced integrators, the FedEx, the DHLs and the UPS, you know, and, and none was actually able to, to really match it. I think since then a lot has happened, you know, kind of the, the, the postal players players has beefed up their capabilities. Um, you have kind of new products coming in even from the integrators and then there are a lot of startups who basically started to fill up in the middle. Is it perfect yet? No, certainly not. As you rightfully say, the more islands, the more problems and the more challenges. So I believe further investment and, and I think a, a bit of a consolidation in the industry would help uh, the development in e-commerce a lot in, 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 in Southeast Asia. Mm. So I think that that's one. Um, so, so that you basically have sustainable companies that, that really put up the infrastructure versus a lot of startups that basically grow and go bust, you know, because you have a lot of churn also even in Singapore. The other big, big one is obviously kind of the G2G, the government-to-government kind of rules on importation, on duties, and, and, and how you basically create this, um, I've been talking about it for a while, the green channel for e-commerce within ASEAN. You know, I think that would really rapidly see because if companies in any part of, of ASEAN could access 600 million consumers by not having to wait you know, for two weeks for, for, for customs clearance and uh, intransparent kind of rules, obviously not in Singapore, but the outside of it, I think that would be a huge boost. And that could be you know, the, the, this X10 event that could really kind of drive the e-commerce industry to the next level. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean and I know that they're working and there's different ASEAN, ASEAN summits on, on, on this topic, but 
probably it will be it will be a while longer before exactly. it, it so gets I, done. I'm a big advocate of a pragmatic pilot. <laughs> Take two countries, make it happen, and then everyone will see the benefits. You know. Yes. Um, moving on to the to the talent side and to the um, to the human resources and basically the engine behind the growth of a lot of companies. Right. What's your main challenges when it comes to finding the right talent to uh, push Luxasia forward into the future? Yeah. That's clearly the, the, the toughest part, at the same time, the most rewarding part. You know, as a CEO, kind of, sometimes my colleagues are surprised when I say I spend 70, 80% of my time on talent. But it is, it's a fact because, um, you know, at the end of the day, you need to have a team in place, and the team needs to have teams in place that understand where you're going. You know, if, if it's basically business as usual, and, and, and if, if people understand the transformation to say, oh, yeah, I just come to, to the office, you know, in a different way, and I, and I talk a little bit, but when I go back to my cubicles, I still do the same work, you know, they, they will all fail. So basically, the motivation of the team, the assessment of the team, the bringing of new talents is key. Um, someone recently told me also that he believes, you know, talent attraction is now more important than talent retention. I think that's quite a radical thought, I would say. But there is a point behind it because you can see, especially as a distributor like us, you know, where you are basically developing people in multifaceted areas in a lot of different areas. You know, we also be seen as a training ground, you know, for some of the big beauty companies, you know, that then pick some of our players. So for us, it's very important to have a pipeline of people to basically come in and, 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 and join what we call the Lux Asia family or the Lux Asia movement to basically have that ability to work across. So for us, it's top priority, you know, talent attraction. We also basically change the way we communicate with talents now. We make it much more open, much faster, the decision process, much less hierarchical. We put in share option programs, you know, for a private company, uh, quite a step, you know, that people feel more entrepreneur. So we want to put the whole environment in place. We have now uh, just invested uh, quite some amount to change our, our Singapore office, we all we have no more enclosed offices, which means everyone is sitting outside. Also to showcase, hey guys, you know, we are one team. And so we're putting everything in place so that talents basically can see, hey, there's a great company that is basically playing in a field that I like, beauty, and we recently expanded in, into luxury. We're doing our jewelry and other areas. So there's a luxury kind of company that basically is looking for talents and is ready to invest into them. You know? But, you know, having said that, it's still not very easy. It's tough, you know, convincing people, making sure that people are also happy when they come in because our pace is very, very high. You know, we, we, we're basically pushing very, very hard. And um, as such, you know, it is why I'm spending 70, 80% of my time on that. <laughs> mm. and, and let's talk about your direct leadership team. How do you, what are the qualities and the skills and the attributes that you're looking for in them? For, for me, the, the most important is, is, is mindset. You know, I'm, I'm not so worried about the capabilities. We can train it up, you know, especially at the top level. You know, yes, of course, if, if you run a supply chain function or if you're a CFO, it's good if you know accounting or certain views. But, you know, I think that's a hygiene level, you know. The, the, the rest, basically, the, the, the remaining 80% is about the mindset. And, and the mindset we are looking for is, is people who are courageous, who are ready to, to step up, who are ready to make mistakes, who are ready to basically also stand to those mistakes. So it, it's the combination of courage and, and, and taking accountability that we're looking for, where people come in and say, I want to change something, I will do it, and I will let you know kind of if something goes wrong. You know, And on the other hand, between digital and physical, we also want to see there are more leaders that basically understand there's a bridge between both. You know, we don't need leaders that are pure physical. We don't need leaders that are pure digital. You know, people who, who start to understand it's actually one. 
and, and, and find those bridges and then can articulate them to their teams that people say, okay, just making a social media campaign alone is not enough. I then need to make sure that activation is translated also on the retail floor and the other way around. And so for us, it's really about that mindset of, of courage and taking accountability and pushing the boundaries as well as understanding that digital physically is one. And I think this is then those leaderships that we really harness and, and, and want to make sure that they, they become part of our leadership team. Mm. And, and, and you like to call yourself or you prefer to call yourself a chief transformation officer. Uh, tell us a little bit, why, why do you like this, uh, this title and how does it impact your business? Um, you know, there are two side story there. We now basically wanted to make sure that um, all our people in, in, in our company understand that um, we have an inverted pyramid. So we basically renamed all our people, our thousand over uh, fragrance and computer advisors in the retail stores, CEOs, chief engagement officers. You know, they were at the beginning, they were quite kind of scared about the title. But the good thing is you know, now at least, you know, I have about thousand CEO colleagues in, in my company, which is very helpful. <laughs> now, coming back to the, to the chief transformation officer title or, or whatever one may call it, I think it, it's more something where I want to signal to the company that transformation and especially digital transformation cannot be parked with in, in a corner office on the side with a, with a chief digital officer, chief transformation for something else. It needs to be the CEO. Because if, if it's not role modeled, if it's not lived every single day in all the decision you make, you will not be able to transform, at least in my humble opinion. And that's why I basically always say kind of, this actually kind of, I'm much more transformation officer than executive officer. Because I need to make sure that the company stays on track and constantly challenge itself to say, you know, every single day to say, hey, what can we do different today? How can we challenge ourselves? How can we make sure that the consumer really understands we are there for them? Um, and, and how do you? Uh, this is a, this is an interesting setup that you're in, right? Because obviously, uh, the owner, Mr. Mr. Chong, uh, is, is is somebody that has, has groomed the business, has, has yes. grown the business. Um, some of his uh, some of his family uh, help you in, in running the business. Um, it's an interesting dynamic. How do you how do you um, you know how do you perceive it as operating within a family business? And how how, how what's your experience of it so far? So very good experience. Patrick is someone I'm, I'm learning a lot from. You know, because uh, um, in Patrick's word, in Patrick's word, he also said, you know, kind of, um, we are a perfect combination. You know, because you know he really knows the, the the beauty in retail industry in Asia like no one else. And I'm learning every day, kind of how how really the dynamics are in, in each location, each country, and how the different brands uh, interact. And at the same time, I can bring in that that, that digital transformation mindset, and 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 together we are really aiming to 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 make Lux Asia an even greater company. And I think with that also. Also, in tandem is that the, the family, the employees, everyone understands that kind of there is an absolute unity on the top between the chairman and the CEO to say, hey, let's do something great. Let, let, let's put the money where our mouth is. We also basically put a lot of money into in the, in investments, building up a completely new CRM team. We have over 40 people in digital now, you know, for a private company, quite a lot of people, you know, and basically saying we're going down that train and we're basically making sure that Lux Asia kind of is transforming into the new age. And I think if you have a common purpose and a trust, I think it, it can work very, very well. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Um, talking about leadership, what do you think is, uh, and you talked about transformation, but apart from transformation, uh, what is another characteristic that you believe every leader should possess? Um, as I said before, the, the, for me, it, it's about courage, mm. but uh, taking responsibility or accountability. You know, because one doesn't work without the other. Just a courageous person that rolls everything off doesn't work. It's someone who basically says, I'll do everything, but doesn't have the courage to, to train it. It's there. Why am I saying that? Because managing, uh, management under uncertainty, 
you know, is, is now a norm. It used to be kind of in a, a business school, kind of one of these management, I, I even forgot all the different terms, but it was one, you know, the last one typically mentioned. It's now everything. You don't know, you know, in the, in the beauty industry, which beauty brand will, will, will succeed in the next year. You know, they, they, they have very different trajectories depending on which celebrity endorses them or what innovation pipeline is. You don't know how the consumers are moving. You don't know that the geopolitical risk now, now kind of with, with the challenges we have between China and, 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 and the U.S., you know, which suddenly kind of import taxes and everything else. So every day is a new day. And so you need people who basically take the responsibility to say, okay, I'm here to make the, 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 the decision. I'm, I'm not waiting for someone to, to cover everything. I'm making it, you know, I go out and make it within the values of the company, with the best interest of the company at heart. And if things go, go, go wrong, I'll tell everyone, you know, because then together we can problem solve. And I think if you get that spirit, you can move very, very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 just kind of add upon the, on the point, right? Because you talked about transformation, you talked about changing. But what does it actually take to change culture and to have that buy-in for transformation? Because again, when you're talking about big organizations, it's not easy, right? It's no. not easy as it does take time. It it, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, I was saying, kind of mindset change is not done in two to three years. It's a five to seven year journey, you know, until basically everyone understood why. That the core ingredient for any human being to change is, 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 is to understand the why. Why are we changing? What's the urgency? And so you need to articulate in each kind of different company. And in our setting, it was clear that we're saying, hey, the industry around us is completely changing. The consumer is changing. The retail industry is changing. The brands are changing by themselves. So if we don't change, if you don't come, come much more attuned to digital, if you're more open and understand the consumer better, you know, at one point in time, no one needs a distributor anymore, you know? And so that's something you need to get in everyone's mind that there is an urgency. It's not just because we woke up and said, hey, let's transform. It's basically because the industry is telling us. And then very clearly, you know, with that urgency, you need to make sure why should people stay, you know, because they could say, well, yeah, great, you know, you're transforming, you know, I want a normal job, I go somewhere else. So you need to make it clear how people can learn and grow within such a transformation, which I've seen, you know, in, with my, in, in, in several kind of, uh, of the situations I've been before, where people over three, four years became completely different leaders and were able to do completely different things because they, had, they were empowered much more than they would not because it was a transformation. They were thrown into to, to cold water and were able to, to swim very, very fast. And so you have to make sure that there is something that the question was, what's in it for me? So you, you really need to address it and, and make sure people understand it. And I think if you put those both together to, into a story that people start to understand and you repeat it maybe a million times, you know, that's basically when mindset starts, starts to happen. But at the end, at the very end of all is the role modeling. If at the top it's not role model, the way you want all these values and this new change to happen, it will never happen. So you need to make sure that you're basing on the ball and, 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 and an example for, for the change. Yes. And I think, I mean, that's, uh, that's uh, just to add a few, a few thoughts from our perspective as, as executives such and as consultants to companies, that's where a lot of um, organizations fail because they, mm-hmm. uh, they, there's a lot of lip service uh, to the change, but there's not actually leadership teams following the change and, and walking the talk every day. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two journeys, right? You have two journeys very close to Asia, actually very close also to, to Singapore. You have the Singpost uh, journey. Now you're, you're on the journey with, the, with LaxAsia. Um, you've been in Asia for a long time. How have these particular two companies and two um, uh, CEO, being the CEO of these two groups so far, shaped your own thinking? A, a, a lot. A lot, you know, because, you know, when you come over and you still uh, work in a multinational environment, um, it, it's different than really working in Asian companies, you know. 
And, um, you know, I, I, I'm very grateful to, for, for the time here in Asia. There's not only kind of business-wise, it's super to, to be in, 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 in a region that is growing constantly, you know, and in all matters, but it's also kind of learning um, from the Asian culture on how to resolve conflict, on how to basically uh, talk with each other, on, on how to basically preserve the face and, and, and thinking through that and then combining it with some of that Western kind of thinking that you have about kind of transparency and, and, and direct access. Uh, I think made it really fun for, for me to, to, to work in that environment and, and, and um, I'm, I'm learning every single day. And I personally believe it made me a better manager. Because I'm, I'm, I'm basically um, have two parts, in, two hearts, and two brains now, always deliberating. You know, when you go into a big discussion, to to to, to think through, and um, I think a bit more reflection on, on on how you do things are certainly helpful. You know, especially mm. uh, if you come with with a, with, a, with a Western European kind of mindset. Mm. Final question for uh, for the younger parts of our audience, you know, people that are graduating, uh, students or young students or young uh, MBA uh, uh, graduates. What would be a piece of advice that you would give them if they wanted to have a successful career in a, in a multinational setup or in a, in a, in a company like, uh, like Luxage? For me, very simple, experiment. Experiment at the early stages in your career. Really find out what you like to do. Don't, don't be shy and don't be too afraid of, of, of changing jobs you know, or trying out different environments. Find the environment you're best in because once your passion is locked in, everything else takes care of itself. So I think I'm, I'm mentoring quite a few students you know, in, in my alma mater, the University of Exeter and, and so forth. And they're always saying, oh, you know, but there's the big firms and companies and so forth. And I said, but try it out. Trust me. Now, having been in the workforce for well, yeah, a while, you know, kind of close to 20 years, I'm saying, you know, once, you know, in 10 years, it's not that easy to to change. It's still possible, but you are at a stage of a career where you can really try everything out. Have the confidence. Bright people will always get a job and always have fun, but once you find your passion, that's when it really clicks. Yes. Thank you. Well, Wolfgang, it's been a it's been a very insightful sharing. Thank you for all the examples and the good uh, the good information and the good uh, the good news that you've shared with us. And we wish you and Laksasia a great journey ahead. Thank you, Rado. Really enjoyed it. Yeah? Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to follow us on radopalamario.com slash podcast for all the show notes, links, and extra tips covered in the interview. Make sure also to subscribe to our emailing list to get the news in the nick of time. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes or Stitcher and you like what we do, please kindly review and give us five stars so we can keep the energy flowing and get more people to find out about our podcast. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me to stay tuned for our latest uh, articles as well as future guests for the podcast and if you have any suggestions or any other idea please feel free to write to me i respond to all and also please make sure not to miss our next episode where we will be having a few other c-level and top leaders in supply chain joining us stay tuned